Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we're joined by a, a, a lifer, a veteran Broadway performer, <laughs> Broadway off-Broadway touring companies all over the world, it seems. Malcolm Getz has been in so many different shows, from a more here in New York, a recent Irish rep company revival of Finian's Rainbow, a couple of uh, the Encores productions at New York City Center, uh, just a whole slew of things. I won't go through the whole list. It would take up the whole show to, to t- tell everything you've been in. But welcome, Malcolm, to Downstage Center. Thank you. I love that you call me a lifer. <laughs> That's good. Malcolm, it's funny to me, as I was looking back at at your uh, resume, I first met you when you were still a student at the Yale School of Drama doing Mm -hmm. all of this very serious work, and I've sort of been fascinated as I've watched you certainly go into Caroline in the City and do that, and then really blossom as this musical performer. Mm -hmm. And I kept thinking, because what I was familiar with you from was all of this terribly serious stuff Mm -hmm. that, wow, this is a change of pace. Mm -hmm. So when I looked at these lists of what you'd done, there are all of these musicals down at the Seaside Music Theater Mm -hmm. and the Mm -hmm. Hippodrome Theater. So you really were a musical comedy guy from the get-go. Yeah. No, I I started playing piano when I was eight because my parents played. By the time I was 10, they all thought, you know, that I was, well, I was going to give Rubenstein a run for his money. I was a very serious classical pianist. When I was 13, I had a crush on this girl, Hannah Stamer, in Gainesville, Florida. Her mother was from New York. Her mother directed the local community theater. I started following Hannah to her mother's rehearsals. They were doing Showboat, Annie Get Your Gun. And then there was a night the accompanist was late. I could, I could and still can read music as fast as I can read English. And so I would get up. I was this little kid. I'd get up and just start, like, sight reading through. Got no diamonds, got no pearls. And then I would be teaching parts to people. And Hannah's mother would say, like, you could sing. The next thing I know, I'm in the play. When I, This is the very condensed version. When I was 15 or 16, I had a really, really amazing, brilliant, ferocious piano teacher who was pushing me really hard. And when I was about 15 or 16, I came in for a lesson one day. And she's like, what's going on? She's like, you know, down here, you can dazzle everybody. And she's like, but, you know, once we put you in the big leagues again, she could tell my my attentions were split. And so at the time, I was like, okay, eight hours a day in a practice room by myself, you know, working on hand on the virtuoso pianist, or staying out to all hours of the night, hanging out with these crazy theater people and having fun and getting drunk. <laughs> so there was, that's when the decision was made. So when I introduced you as a lifer, I wasn't far from wrong. No, you're right, actually, because, <laughs> yeah, I did. I started to, I started, you know, that was 14, 13, 14. I got my equity card when I was 18 playing mm-hmm. Mozart, which was perfect. I mean, that's the great thing is throughout my career, uh, Amadeus, A New Brain, Merrily We Roll Along, is I get to play these composers. And then, you know, all of my piano skills come up. And what kills me is the theater being what it is. I can't tell you how many other shows I've done. And people come backstage and they're like, it looked like you were really playing the piano. And I'm like, I am really playing the piano. So, Well, you, you went to Yale. Yeah, for well, graduate school. Yeah, what did you study at Yale? Well, I went through the the acting program and, you know, my relationship to musicals, I'm in the theater because of musicals. I'm in the theater because of my parents' record albums. My parents are Londoners. They grew up in London during the war. They saw all the great shows in the day. You know, they saw Rex Harrison and Julie Andrews over there. They saw the shows. And then they came to the States in 51. They saw Gwen Verdon in those shows. You know, when we were kids, myself and my three brothers and sisters, we would sit around and my mother loved Rodgers and Hammerstein. And I used to call them the Big Five, Oklahoma, Carousel, South Pacific Sound of Music, and The King and I, especially Carousel. The people at R&H call them that, too, pretty much. Exactly. (laughs) And, you know, our mother at the time, she ended up working after she hit 40. But in those early years, she would just put on the Carousel record and we would all hang out at the house. So when I 
and I had a really good ear. I could I could uh, I could just pull tunes out of the out of my ears and play them on the piano. So it became this thing where I'd come home from school, I'd go in the living room to start practicing Mozart or Bartok, and I'd end up playing the Carousel Waltz for my mother. Uh-huh. So I'm in the theater because of musical theater. But when I came to New York. I, I did my first off-Broadway show at ELT. Remember ELT? Equity Library Theater. I did their playing or song there in 1984 or something. And then did a lot of Shakespeare and all this other stuff. Well, in 88 or something, I got cast at the Christmas show at Radio City. As what? Well, it was it was like- Not the old, a rocket. No, exactly. <laughs> they, they were, there were six dancing boys called the New Yorkers. And it was like out a scene out of a chorus line where you go for two days and they keep making cuts and they keep making cuts. And so we danced and we danced and we danced. And uh, finally at the end of like the second day after, you know, dancing for a few hours, they took me aside and they said, we see that you have some legitimate acting experience. Because I had, I'd already done Shakespeare and Mozart and uh, Cloud Nine, a lot of plays. I said, yes. And they said, we have some scenes we'd like you to read for us. They then proceeded to give me scenes where I was saying, ho, 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 get into the sleigh, children. And, you know, Cratchit, you know, you, Tiny Tim. And they basically wanted me to read Santa Claus and and Scrooge. I was 155 pounds. I was 22 years old, you know. Uh, And so I read the scenes. And uh, my memory is that I literally got halfway through the Santa Claus scene. And they were like, you were totally hired. (laughs) Because they needed a boy who could dance in the chorus who could stand by for the character actor, which is ludicrous. But... So we did five shows a day for three and a half months. And during that time, a very kind woman named Laura Blood, who was teaching at Juilliard at the time, she had to create all of my wigs and my my stuff. So I'd sit in her chair for hours at a time while she created all these Santa Claus and, and Scrooge you know, paraphernalia. And it was sort of like going to a shrink. I would just sort of talk to her about my life. Mm-hmm. And one day, you know, I was talking about the fact that I'd done all this other stuff and, you know, that I was so happy to be dancing at Radio City, but I knew I had more in me. And Laura said, you should go back to school. And I said, where? And she goes, you should go to Yale or Juilliard or one of those places. And I said, you know, they're not going to take me. And she said, well, just go audition. So I applied to the schools. I came up with my monologues on my own. I didn't tell my parents or anybody that I was auditioning. I got in, which was just unbelievable. And I went to Yale and I thought, no one can know about this musical past of mine. I thought, the minute they find out I was just dancing at Radio City, they're going to throw me out of the school so fast. As Santa Claus is understudy. Exactly. <laughs> so what was the experience of being at Yale? You, you kept your secret, but obviously it was, it was a different sort of work. At the end of my first semester, Doug Wager, who used to be the artistic director of Arena Stage, came to direct Pygmalion at Yale Rep, which is the professional theater associated you know, in conjunction with the drama school. And the faculty decided to assign me as a reader when they were casting the other parts with Meg Simon was the casting director. Just to basically read the parts for somebody else. Yeah, somebody else was auditioning and I would sit there and I would, you know. So I sat around for five hours and I read Higgins and maybe Eliza and all that stuff. And after lunch, I came back and Doug said, you're very talented. He goes, I want to cast you as Freddie. And I was like, wow. And he said, I asked for your resume and I see you've done a lot of musicals. And I remember I started to say like, whoa, 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 no, 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 no. And he literally cut me off and he goes, relax. He goes, I love actors who sing. He said, actors who sing are usually good with verse and Shaw and Shakespeare and stuff like that. And that was the first time I started to realize that all of that musical work had really served me well. So then I was at Yale for three years, barely did any musical stuff got out of school, and within four weeks was doing Juno Off-Broadway with Lonnie Price, which was a musical. Must have made your parents, being British, being Londoners, made them very happy that you're in My Fair Lady. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> the non-musical version. So, so mom playing all those records around the house paid off. Yeah. But you did quickly, after Yale, 
do a couple of shows up at Hartford Stage mm-hmm. that I have to bring up partially out of self-interest because mm-hmm. I worked there at the time, mm-hmm. but one a musical and one Shakespeare, and those mm-hmm. were those were major credits for you coming out of school. Yeah, I was just out of school. We did Juno off-Broadway, which is a, a Blitzstein uh, musical, and I, the character I played in Juno had one arm. And then I got cast in Martin Gare, which Mark Lamos directed, which was sort of an opera with Judy Kuhn, who was, you know, still a good friend. And I was afraid to sing in front of because I was so blown away by her. And on the first day of rehearsal, I found out in Martin Gare that at the end of the show, I entered with one leg. <laughs> I remember <laughs> my agent saying, like, they're like, everybody in New York's going to think you're a gimp actor. You know, what is this? So, But the connection in those thoughts was my last semester at Yale, Graziella Danielle, who is – you know, I love a lot of people I've worked with, but I think my happiest experiences have been with her. She was directing, I think for the first time, both parts of Falsettos together at Hartford. And she was teaching us on her Mondays off at Yale. And so we went over to see the the production and suffice it to say, they had to like peel me off the floor. Like I, I literally was crying so hard at the end of that production that uh, my friends were embarrassed. They were like, pull it together. And then I was doing Martin Gare with Mark Lemos at Hartford and one day they called and they said they wanted me to go into the city to audition for this Michael John LaCusa Michael John LaCusa piece called Hello Again that Graziella was directing. And Mark turned to me because they he and Graziella were close, are close. And Mark said, "Oh, you two are made for each other. You'll totally get along." And he said, "I'm going to call her." And I said, "No, no, 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 don't call her because I was young and I wanted, you know, I didn't want it to be that way." I went and I auditioned, had a great audition. She cast me, and then Mark told me later, he's like, "Of course I called her." <laughs> so. But that brings you, you – the connection you said, how important that production of Falsettos was just mm-hmm. to experience as an actor. And then you had the opportunity – you've had the opportunity to work several times with Bill Finn. Mm-hmm. But uh, was New Brain the first of those opportunities? New Brain was the first one, yeah. We did the first workshop. We did a reading like in 96 maybe. I, I just started on a series in L.A. And I remember we have – when you're on television, you have these hiatuses in the summer that are like three months. And – a lot of television people like try to do movies or whatever, and I think I was the bane of my agent's existence because we'd have a hiatus, and I was like, I'm going home to do a Bill Finn workshop or a Stephen Sondheim workshop. So we did the first reading of New Brain, I think that first summer. We did another reading the next summer, and then we did the production of New Brain in 98. And you were playing a character based I was on Bill him. Finn. You were I playing sure Bill. I was. I was playing a hypochondriac, brilliant, tortured, neurotic composer they're like call malcolm <laughs> what, what was what was the basic storyline of the show well what actually happened to bill was he had written you know the two parts of falsettos over the years the hartford stage production was such a sensation frank rich gave it a love letter they brought it into new york it opened he didn't bill did bill win a tony for the score well ultimately bill won after it was the james lapine production right, that right, came to new york right. and it was not the, it was not grazi's production it was not right, the hartford production right. but it was a remounting yeah. combining the lapine production but it wouldn't i mean with all respect to james and those guys it wouldn't have come in if graziella hadn't put those two pieces together so anyway i love them both but he came to broadway bill wins the tony somewhere during that euphoric period i think he was like with god lover wendy wasserstein who we just lost who was a good friend of his I think he was with Wendy. He was somewhere in the theater district. He was crossing the street, and he collapsed. And it turns out Bill, all of his life, had had this – I used to know the name for it. It's like arterial venal malformation, uh, like a bubble in his brain, and it finally ruptured. It was akin to having a stroke. At first, they said he wouldn't live. Then when 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 it was apparent he was going to live, they said he'll never speak or walk again or function. 
Wendy, I think maybe Andre Bishop, Bill's really good friends, got a piano and put it in Bill's room. And they said, write. And apparently before Bill could really function, speak again, he just sat down and like 20 tunes like poured out of him. And so eventually, of course, now Bill is basically fully recovered and that became the basis for a new brain. So in in new brain, instead of Bill Finn, I was Schwinn. I was Bill Schwinn. Gordon Schwinn. Gordon Schwinn. Gordo Schwinn. <laughs> and uh, and that was the the plot. It was about I was this crazy composer. I have this health crisis. I get through it, and the show ended on a very, you know, that show I just think is the most glorious score. I mean, I I think it's the most incredible score. It has like a cult following. We just did a concert of it in L.A. two months ago. It was like a rock concert. Literally, we came out at the top of the show and they clapped for 10 minutes. The show has so many fans because of the CD. And I think it's produced a lot now. So, Well, through the magic of radio, we can actually demonstrate what the score sounded like in a song that you sang. Why Good. don't you pick one from The New Brain and kind of set up how it worked in the show? You know, the, the whole score is just gorgeous. But uh, the song that I have sung a lot of the times is called And They're Off. And uh, I suspect it's a very autobiographical song about perhaps Bill's father. It's in the in the show. The composer sings it at a point when he's looking back on his parents and basically his father, who had a certain addiction that he couldn't control, and the repercussions it had on the family. It's called "And They're Off." William Finn's song from a new brain, "And They're Off." Malcolm gets voice singing. Malcolm, yeah. <laughs> wonderful, uh, wonderful performance. Thank you, thank you. It's a great song. In, in in your career, what performances that you've been able to give really stand out in, in in your mind for one reason or another? Whether it's your performance or just to show you in the company you yeah. were with or the music, whatever. Playing Mozart when I was nineteen or twenty in Amadeus, uh-huh. that was fantastic, um, and a good fit, I think. Um, Franklin Shepard when we did Merrily We Roll Along off Broadway, that was a great experience. Again, because. It's funny, when they, I was just out of school, the York Theater announced they were going to revive Merrily, and I'm a bad actor in that most of the times when parts come up, I say to my friends, I'm like, oh, they should cast Michael Hayden in that part, or oh, they should cast, you know, I'm always casting my friends in those parts. When they announced Merrily We Roll Along, it was one of the few times in my life I was like, they should totally give me that part. So I was actually able to go into those auditions, and I was just out of school, Susan Shulman, Steve Sondheim, they didn't know who I was, so, and... I have to, and I was younger too. I mean, I think that's sort of bravado. But I was actually able to walk into those auditions with that feeling of like, you know, who? How are you going to find an actor who can sing and talk and play the piano? And fortunately, they agreed. Well, you've been in so many different productions. How do you decide what you want to do, what you want to go after, or do they just come after you? Oh boy. Well, you know, in the theater, I mean, I, I, part of the reason I live in New York is because it's my home, and I've lived here so much of my life, and I just prefer it. But it's also because I feel more valued in the theater. It's, it's you know, sometimes they offer me jobs. Sometimes they'll say, well, look, you know, we want you to come on audition. Um, L.A. has been good to me. But, you know, I was thinking today, my parents are English, but my parents grew up in London. And the thing I envy about the English is that their industries, theater, film, and television, are in one city. You know, when you're an American actor, and if you have the great good luck, as I have and a lot of my friends have, where you can sing and you can do non-musicals, we're faced with this ridiculous situation where, you know, I'll do all this theater work. And then for one reason or the other, I'm in Los Angeles. And every so often, you know, people are like, so what happened to you? Where have you been since Caroline in the City? And I'm like, well, done all this theater? You know, and they're like, oh, right. You know, we go back once a year. We saw Hairspray, you know. They don't know. And it's as an actor, it's very frustrating because the two – sometimes I feel like I have two careers, you know. And literally people will come up to me and they'll talk about Caroline in the City or a film I've been in and have no inkling of all my theater work. 
And then similarly, you know, and I love it, especially when I'm in L.A. and somebody will walk over to me and I think, OK, here it goes. And then they say, wow, we loved you in Amour. We loved you in Two Gentlemen of Verona. I'm like, oh, thank God. You know, thank well, we should you. mention that you played Richard for four years in Caroline in the right. City. Right. Right. Yes, I did. Yeah. And ironically, because of a musical, I was uh, I think it was it was the year I did Hello Again, Merrily. And I did Shakespeare in the Park. I did uh, Two Gentlemen of Verona. And Marco Panette, who was one of the creators of Caroline, is an East Coaster started in Hal Prince's office when he was like 17, loves the musicals, and brought me in for that role. And then they flew me out to L.A. to work with the director, Jim Burroughs, son of Abe. Abe. And uh, Jimmy, which, and I mean, I knew who Jimmy was, but I, you know, I didn't know at the time that Jimmy was the stage manager for David Merrick's musical Breakfast at Tiffany's with Mary Teller Moore and Richard Chamberlain. And, you know, Jimmy grew up around his father and all those shows. And so they all sort of kept their mouths shut. But once they gave me the part, then it all came pouring out. You know, they were like, oh, we love musicals. We love New York. So, Well, as we talk about your musicals, um, you haven't done the classic big musical comedies mm-hmm. with the really Finian's Rainbow was the closest to that although mm-hmm. in a smaller production you've you've been in newer musicals you've been in interestingly structured musicals why why do you think that is is it that you don't go out for the straightforward ones or that they look for you for the for the quirkier more idiosyncratic ones i think it's both a little bit um the closest i've come to having that experiences aside from Finian's is the two encores I did Boris from Syracuse seven or eight years ago, which was like a love fest. And then The Apple Tree, which I just did with Kristen Chenoweth, Michael Sorveris, Gary Griffin directed. And I got to say, I love all the dark, offbeat musicals I've done. But what a kick when you do a song that actually has a button and it ends and people clap and they're very happy. And I have to say that where I'm at today, the next show up, I'm putting this out to the universe and maybe to any producers living, uh, listening and living, obviously. Um, I would love to do one of those shows. I really would. Um I think in years past, and I say this with a sense of humor about myself, I think I was more tortured. I think there's a reason why I was in Hello Again and Juno and even Caroline in the City, which was lightweight, but I played such a tortured individual. And I think after a lot of therapy and just getting older, part of me was like, oh, lighten up, Malcolm. So it was really delightful to do that. But the also Apple being tree. in those two encores presentations were kind of more similar to what your parents were listening to, what your mother was playing for you. Absolutely. The Apple Tree and uh, and uh, Boys from Syracuse were the old-style musicals. Which I love, which in a way it does feel sort of like a full circle because that's the reason I'm in the business. And you're right, Howard. Like, you know, it is – It's I love that I have all these, you know – you know, Mark Lamos and I ended up doing so much together. I did that Martin Gare with him. I did Merchant of Venice with him. I did Edward II with him at ACT in Which San Francisco. Which at that point in your career was a major change of pace because yeah. that was anything but uh, right. a situation comedy, musical comedy production. Well, first of all, I feel so fortunate that I can sort of bounce around because, you know, my mother used to say when I was a kid that I drove her crazy because I would literally say, I'm bored, mom. And she used to say, I was not put on this planet to, like, entertain you, you know. So I think there is still this part of me that because I because I can do all sorts of things and because fortunately people have let me do all sorts of things, it just keeps it more interesting for me. But I have to say that ever since Apple Tree, there's this part of me. And also just watching I love the new shows and I love pop music. I have no problem. I love the score for Wicked. Like I'm not one of those. But there is a part of me that's sort of an old fuddy-duddy. Lying on the stage of City Center when they started that overture, it's called the Eden Prelude in Apple Tree. With that, with Rob Fisher conducting that orchestra playing, that gorgeous Jerry Bach 
and then Sheldon Harnick's score. It was, you know, in some ways, I'm like, that's what I want. So I don't know, putting that out to the universe, but that's really what I'd like to do is because, you know, it's so funny going to L.A. and I'll be in L.A. and I'll read the New York Times. And once a year, they always write a piece saying like, you know, Broadway's changed and it'll never be the same. Broadway's dead. They always say it. And I feel like it's never going to happen. And uh, I would really like to do one of those. And not necessarily a revival. I mean, it, it would be fun if somebody was sort of writing in the fashion of those older shows. Well, and any particular roles of, of existing shows that you would like to play that you haven't already played? Well, maybe I shouldn't say this on this show, but I'm Go just going to say it because why not? We did the dress rehearsal of Apple Tree, and uh, I'm probably making somebody nervous right now, but we did the dress rehearsal of Apple Tree, and we came in the next night, and Kristen's like, they're all ready to do it. Like, we literally did the dress rehearsal, and apparently several of the major producers were like, let's do it. So that was last March. Holy, it's almost been a year. Mm -hmm. So over the year, it's been that sort of torturous process where once every three months they call and they're like, well, are you interested? And I'm like, absolutely. So now the whole thing is we've been waiting for the demise or not of the West Wing, which three weeks ago it was announced is is out of there. So I'm sort of in that thing now where I'm sort of like, well, there's there's I think there's a very strong chance of us doing Apple Tree, which would just be fantastic. It would be so great because it's not it's a great show, but it's not a show that people have really strong memories of. It's not a show that's produced all the time. You know, well, again, it's not truly a conventional musical, although mm-hmm. the Bach and Harnick score, mm-hmm. they were writing in that idiom. It is three one-act mm-hmm. musicals. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people know the album and, you know, one out of 50 people saw Barbara Harris and Alan Alda. But it's really one of those shows that – and I think – and let me tell you also, I think Gary is just a fantastic director. Like I had done uh, uh, Call Me Madam with him in Chicago and uh, he's another guy who does Shakespeare. He does Sondheim. He just has a fascinating career. He's the director of the current production of The Color Purple on exactly. Broadway. Just one of those great guys who everybody knew about but he was kind of hanging out in Chicago and now he's finally in New York and – um and somebody I trust to to with Apple Tree because you know it's a funny piece. It's got fantastic stuff in it, but I think tone wise, you just have to have somebody in charge who gets it. And I felt like Gary really got it. So anyway, we might be doing Apple Tree sometime in oh six or oh seven. That would be great. And aside from that, I'm forty two, and I feel like I feel like so many of the parts I want to play are not. So many of the parts I want to play are in front of me because really when I was growing up, the men that I saw and idolized were the Lancarios and the Richard Kileys and those guys, um, which is good for me. You know, happily I wasn't, you know, it wasn't the juvenile parts. It was the, it was the leading man or older leading man parts. So I don't know. We'll have to see. <laughs> I want to loop back because we, we mentioned Merrily We Roll Along and at the time at which you did that, that was a show that kept getting worked on. I think, you know, certainly we know of the original Broadway production in the early 80s. At the point that you did it, there had been a production in Seattle. There had been a production at Arena Stage. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned being cast, you know, in Sondheim not knowing you. Where was the show in its development? Was mm. it still being tweaked when you were a part of it? And mm. did you do you have an opportunity to, to, to be a part of that? Um, I think by that point... Stephen Sondheim and George Firth, the book writer, um, they had significantly rewritten the show at those places you mentioned. And James Lapine had been really involved in that. And James is also a book writer. So I suspect that James had a significant hand in helping them um, revise the show. 
So when we did it, no. I mean, certainly Sondheim did not rewrite the show again. He was heavily involved in Passion at the time. George was around a lot. And I think, if anything, maybe made some trims. The difference between the other productions, I think when they did it out west and then in Washington, was I was basically 30 at the time. And, you know, the show takes place from 20 to 40. When they initially did it on Broadway, they were all 20. I think the West Coast production and the D.C. production, they were 40-ish. So then they ended up casting us as, you know, sort of in the middle. I think that was sort of the different take. It was uh, Amy Ryder, uh, Adam Heller, Michelle Park, and Bobby. Um, we were all sort of of that age. That was a pretty great experience. I mean, that was really sort of a dream come true. I love that show, you know. I always say that Merrily is one of those shows like Godspell where, you know, people come and some people are still like, it goes backwards. You know, they're like, what's that about? But it's one of the shows... The reason I say like Godspell, because I know for myself and a lot of my friends, you do these productions of certain shows, and even if the audiences don't like them, it's so much about being a company that you end up loving it. And I know that the, the Merrily Company was a very happy company. Let's talk about it more. Now, that shows here in New York a couple of years ago at the Music Box Theater. Yeah. It had been a big hit in Paris, music of Michel Legrand. Mm-hmm. And then it was brought to this country. You start opposite uh, Melissa Erico. You play Du Soleil. Tell us a little bit about the show and the music. Well, and uh, first that. of all, I want to talk about Melissa, who's uh-huh. going to have a baby. Like right, in a couple, very soon. Six weeks, little girl. Love Melissa and her husband, Patrick. You know, Melissa was an undergrad at Yale when I was there, and she was the star of Yale. Everybody, She was on tour playing Cosette, like in the first national of Les Mis. Everybody was like, Melissa Erico. And then she did My Fair Lady, and she and I did an early workshop of Triumph of Love, which we couldn't continue on with. I was doing the series, and she was doing maybe High Society. And we bonded then, and then we've done so many things together. We did Finian's. We just did Camelot at the Hollywood Bowl for one night. She was Guinevere. Jeremy Irons was Arthur. I was Mordred. And uh, we did it with John Macherry at the Hollywood Bowl, which is 6,000, 8,000 people. Crazy. Fantastic. 80-piece orchestra. Um, so I love Melissa. I, we do everything together. Yeah, we did a more. Uh, James Lapine was involved, was directed it, and instrumental in getting it done. Um, again, we did workshops of it. We did readings of it. Um, love Michelle Legrand. I mean, just an incredible man, a brilliant musician, a, a once-in-a-lifetime piano player. Like, you should see and hear Michelle sit down and play his own stuff. I mean, it's just amazing and beautiful and you know the spirit of he really is like the leprechaun in Finian's Rainbow you know he's probably 72 73 now but he's really got so much love for life and such a zest and and I felt like certainly with the score of Amore because we did the workshops and the readings over a course of a year and a half before we went into production the title song Amore which Melissa and I sang when we were finally together we'd been singing this absolutely beautiful song and literally we get into previews and one day they're like we're going to keep the lyrics but we're going to write an entirely new tune so here comes, you know, Michelle, 72 years old, writing a new song as gorgeous as anything he's ever written overnight. Mm. You know, just still on top of his game. So here you were in a show where you were actually working with the composer from oh, yeah. day to day, basically. Yes. H- how was that experience when the composer's there and you're able to ask questions he could talk to you? He was so good to us. Uh-huh. He was so good to me. You know, again, a situation where if I thought about it too hard, I probably would have freaked out, but I mm-hmm. didn't because he was so behind me. I think, I think what has put me in good stead with so many of these composers is the fact that they know that I was a musician first and foremost. And and I don't do it on purpose, but inevitably there comes a day when I'm sitting around and all of a sudden I'll start to play the piano and I just see them look at me in a different way and they're like, oh yeah, you too. They're like, you know, hours of scales in the morning. I'm like, exactly. And and I think it's funny because it's so funny that I went to Yale and that, and that I've done all this other stuff because 
I consider myself a musician first and foremost. Absolutely. And I think of all the people in my life, the person who saw that most most of all was Wally Harper. Like Wally, I know I'm detracting a little bit or digressing, but Wally and I, I had worked with Barbara Cook on a workshop of a Sondheim show, that a review which was never produced, and um, and had met Wally. But then five, six years ago, was hired to be in a, a reading of a musical that Wally had written with um, Sherman Yellen. And one day the musical director, Mary Mitchell Campbell, ratted on me. And so Wally comes over in his very Elaine Stritch way and he's like, so kid, you know, she tells me you like do your own arrangements and you play. He's like, play me something. So I just played him something and just without missing a beat, Wally was like, come over to my apartment next week. And then it just, I used to call it Tuesdays with Wally (laughs) because I had been in kind of a funk and Wally just made me play and sing. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think, wow, after all this crazy ride I've had, I'm going to end up back where I started sitting at a piano because even in a lot of the concert work I've done I'll have a pianist come in and share the show with me and recently a friend of mine was like why don't you just sit and do the whole show from the piano do you write I do because it seems you talk yeah, about yeah. your solo shows and no, all of this. I know. I know. So where, my where, where, is the, where are the songs of Malcolm Getz? I know. I've just started to perform them. You know, I wrote a lot when I was younger and then throughout school I... It, when I was at Yale, certainly, like, I would p- be playing the clown and then Twelfth Night, and they'd say, like, why don't you set the the Shakespeare poem to music yourself, or I'd write the, the what's it called, the Varsuviana and Streetcar. I've written the score for Streetcar a couple times. Well, I started writing my own songs again a few years ago and actually sang them in L.A. because I was afraid to sing them in New York. And then a year ago, some friends of mine made a, an independent film, and initially they asked me to write some music for, like, the radio in the background of a scene, but I ended up writing a song for – I ended up writing a song based on the character in the film, which was really interesting for me because in the past I've just written songs when I was sort of inspired. And this time it was like writing for a character. It was about a 29-year-old man, and I sort of tried to write it in his vernacular. And they liked it so much it plays over the credits at the end of the film. So We should name the film. What it's is called it? 29th and Gay. My friend Carrie Preston directed it. Um, James Vasquez is the lead actor and wrote the film. It's done a lot of the film festival circuit. And when you brought that up, all I could hear was my mother. My mom's like, you need to keep writing. You need to keep writing. I'm like, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. So anyway, so Amour. Amour was a great experience, kind of heartbreaking. You know, we came and went. Well, it's a show that had passionate fans Mm -hmm. and then, to be honest, some people who were sort of Mm -hmm. mystified about it. What do you think the – what was the quality that – that you thought was so appealing I about think it. there was one thing that would have made a difference to the life of that show and it's what we should have done it off Broadway and I always hate saying we should have I hate that whole idea but and hopefully nobody's going to get mad at me for saying this they knew that we were going to do the show at the public theater that was the initial deal after the workshops and we were set to do it at the public and I still think that that or an idea like that would have been better for the life of the show because the show was gorgeous and wonderful I think it was not American it had that you know some people were like why does it it ended in a very ambiguous way a very sort of melancholy way I think that and most essentially of all a friend of mine said when you do a show about magic it's very hard to show magic and the thing that was so electrifying in the workshops was James' staging was like the Fantastics you know my getting stuck in the walls and all that there was nothing there and I think it left so much more to the audience's imagination and he knew that but the workings of you know contracts and blah 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 they decided to do it on Broadway and once you're on Broadway 
and people are paying $90, $100. You have to beef up the production values. And we had the best designers and the best people. And I think that absolutely it would have had a better life off-Broadway. Well, it did have beautiful music. And again, through the magic of radio, we can actually illustrate that. Why don't you, again, take one of the songs that you performed and we'll, we'll play that. Just kind of set it up. Well, first of all, you know, back to Melissa. Like, what a voice. I just think Melissa's an angel. Looks like an angel, sings like an angel, is an angel. Now she's going to have another little angel. Um, there was a point in the show where I'm the little nerdy guy and I'm in love with a beautiful woman, Melissa from afar. And so she starts off singing and she's very much like Joanna. She's kept in her house every day by this sort of tyrannical man. And so she starts the song where she's talking about how she's free every day from two to three and she's walking to the, the market. And then I'm off to the side and I'm singing about how much I love her. And then we come together and it's a very sort of like, you know, Mm, Yentl sort of, you know, gorgeous, gorgeous. So uh, I can't remember what we ended up calling the song, but this is the song from Amour. Special time of day. Special time of day. Here we go. (laughs) From Amour, special time of day here on Downstage Center. Of course, we're talking to Malcolm Getz. Malcolm, as we wrap up, we've been talking on and off about Los Angeles. You are bi-coastal. You live on both edges of the continent. What what are you doing nowadays out in L.A.? well, elsewhere, I, elsewhere in your life. I'm definitely a New Yorker. I right. definitely live in New York. The past seven years since we wrapped the series, I've been here 90% of the time. I have a house in L.A. from the years I worked out there. Um, it just worked out. I bought the house out there. A year and a half ago, I went out to film a film, which is opening March 31st, called Adam and Steve. And it's Craig Chester, myself, Parker Posey, and Chris Catan. And uh, it was the best kind of working situation because Craig, who is the other lead, wrote it and directed it and is my friend. And Parker is his best friend. So very early on, they, uh, when it was decided we were all doing it, Craig sort of rewrote the screenplay for us. I sing and dance in the movie. It is not a musical. But, you know, four months before we started to film the film, Craig and Parker and I were in the village and we went to Marie's Crisis. Mm-hmm. That old piano right, bar? Right, right. And we went in there, and the next day Craig's like, I'm going to have you sing in the movie. And then he did a parody of the dance of the gym from West Side Story. So we have a full-on dance number in the movie. It The movie is so joyous and so fun. And it played at the Tribeca Film Festival. It's played at film festivals everywhere from, like, Berlin to Palm Springs. I've been to a number of them. I don't know what the critics are going to think, but the audiences absolutely love it. It is so life-affirming. So I've been at back out there uh, doing promotional stuff for that. I th- it's finally opening in theaters March 31st, Adam and Steve. And I went back out there because I had removed myself from the television world since the last series. So I don't even want to say it, but this is the time of the year they call pilot season. So I went out there to sort of say, hi, remember me. And uh-huh. But truthfully, I hope I get to come back and do Apple Tree. <laughs> well, I hope you'll come back and visit us again at XM Satellite Radio. Absolutely. We've been chatting with Malcolm Getz for the last uh, few minutes here at Downstage Center. Malcolm, thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. A, a lifer, as I called you, and truly a working actor. Yeah. That's, uh, that's wonderful to hear, actually. I, I, I love that. Thanks, Malcolm. Thanks for having me. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you.